So today is Palm Sunday, as the children helped reinforce at the beginning of the service. And so we're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, at the triumphal entry, which we often reflect on as Palm Sunday. So as I was looking at this, the nice thing about preaching in the month of April is at least two of my sermons are pretty well predetermined for me. I have Palm Sunday today, and the next week is Easter Sunday. So I don't really have to do a lot of searching for a topic. It's just deciding which, which passage to preach from. Which was interesting, looking at the triumphal entry, because as you look through the Gospels, what you'll see is not everything that's included in each gospel is included in all the other gospels. They, some authors put some things in that others didn't and vice versa. But when it comes to triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, each gospel author included an account of that. So I chose Matthew. But I will be grabbing from some of the other gospels because they added other details that are very pertinent, very have, uh, have value. And the nice thing about it being in all four Gospels, it helps to gather a good idea of the setting, what's, what's come before. You can look through each Gospel and say, oh, this one has this in between what's included here. So something else happened in the midst. Um, some of the big things, just setting up the context of Matthew 21. Some of the big things that have recently happened in the ministry of Christ, you have the transfiguration not too long before this. Jesus' glory is revealed. You have, rather shortly before triumphal entry, you have Lazarus raised from the dead. And one of the important things about Lazarus being raised from the dead is as a result of Christ raising Lazarus from the dead. He is now a public testimony, walking, talking, man who used to be dead. He is a public testimony to the power of Jesus. And that causes the religious leaders to plot to kill Jesus now. And so that's Palm Sunday is like the kickoff of the last week of Christ's life, known as Passion Week. And it is throughout this week, that now they are plotting to kill Jesus. And ultimately, we will, if you read along through the Gospels, you will arrive there at the end of this week. But leading up to this, it's not unknown to Jesus that he will die. But in Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 and 19, this is the third time Jesus foretells his death. And so this is, this is active in his mind and in the disciples' minds as they approach Jerusalem. <clears throat> but Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19 says, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So as Christ approaches Jerusalem, that's, re that's reality. He is aware. He knows he is going there. 
This will be to die, to be crucified. And so keeping that in the background, as you approach this triumphal entry, right? He, Christ triumphantly enters into Jerusalem, and he knows that surely he will be dead. So our text we're going to be looking at is in Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. We'll go ahead and read that, and then we'll dig in. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. <clears throat> the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, as we, we look into this text and we just help us to glean from it the, the majesty of Christ, uh, the beauty of, of him and his ministry and what he came to proclaim, Lord. Um, just help us appreciate him and love him even more as a result of this. Amen. So you begin in verse 21 there, in uh, chapter 21, verse 1, sorry. But it says, they draw near to Jerusalem, came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives. So Mount of Olives was a, a point that was, it was elevated above the city of Jerusalem. It, it, from some of the reading I read, it's, it's almost 200 feet above the city. So you could stand on the Mount of Olives and look down and see the temple in all its glory and all the city of Jerusalem. It was a good overlook point. It gave you a good perspective. And it seemed to be a place where Christ and the disciples liked to spend time. But as they head into Jerusalem, this is, Passover is coming up. This is the week of preparation for Passover. So Jerusalem is going to be just full of people compared to any normal time. And as I was doing some study, one, one commentator was saying, there's, to get an idea of how many people are there, there's actually, we have historical record of a census that was about 10 years after the crucifixion of Christ. And that census has a number of the lambs that were sacrificed at Passover. And it, it said 260,000 lambs were sacrificed that year. That's a lot of lambs. But then you take that number, and it's, if you go back to the, to the law, it tells you one lamb 
is a sufficient sacrifice for up to 10 people. So that lamb could cover up to 10 people, right? So you have a maximum of up to 2.6 million people. And if you're being a little conservative, maybe you say 2 million people, right? 2 million people on, in Jerusalem around about this time. And for us, a city of 2 million is not like crazy. We have cities far greater than that. But at that time, to have that many people all together in one place was significant. The, the city is packed. It is very full. Everybody that's observing the Jewish religion would be there. It is crowded. In the verse 2, he, he's, he issues a command to his disciples. He sends two disciples. He says, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And so, what's a colt? Right, that's a good good point to start. Let's define what a colt is. Right? We're used to saying colt as a, as a young horse, right? But a colt can also be a young donkey. But more specifically, a colt is a male, and they're typically four years old or younger. So they are, it'd be a young male, and in this case, a donkey. We have the mother specified there, a donkey tied and a colt with her. And that's important when we get to the prophecy that's in Zechariah that comes up later. But he, he issues this command, right? He has his disciples, they are, he, he gives orders. But not only that, if you look at this, he, he has knowledge of this thing. He has not been in Jerusalem. He's coming from outside of Jerusalem. It's not like he was recently there and he saw it earlier in the day and said, hey, you're going to go find this thing in there because I went and saw it earlier. Like, no, they're, they're coming from outside of Jerusalem. He hasn't been in Jerusalem. So he has knowledge. He says, immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Right? He hasn't been there to see this, pointing us to the omniscience of Christ, that he has that divine knowledge. And he says, untie them and bring them to me. He doesn't even say, like, go find this owner and ask them, and they're going to give you permission. He says, just go untie them and bring them, right? And he says, goes on in verse 3. It says, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once, right? So this is, this is set aside. He, he has knowledge of this. It was interesting looking at the other gospel accounts, and it tells us in Mark chapter 11, 2, which is the, the parallel account of this in Mark, that this particular cult had never been ridden. It was unbroken. So it was apparently the definition of a cult is up to four years, but this one was probably younger than that because typically you would have put an animal to work by that age, by four. But this cult has not been ridden. And so the other thing I'm thinking as I'm studying this, I'm like, well, why is Jesus going to ride a donkey? That doesn't seem very king-like, right? Like if I'm going to be the king and I'm going to go in, I'm going to go in on a stallion, right? Going in on a big horse. But instead he goes on a donkey. And there's even more so, it's like, well, why does he need a donkey all of a sudden, right? He, he, Christ walks everywhere, right? We have the, 
the washing of the feet, right? His feet are dirty from walking everywhere in sandals on the trails where all the animals are walking also. He is not in need of transportation. Christ is more than capable of walking, right? It points us to verse five, where specifically verse four tells us it took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. This thing is being done in order to point further to Christ being the Messiah. That is why this is happening. It's a symbolic event. It's a, a living parable. It's a fulfilling of the events predicted by the prophet Zechariah, that this is the Messiah. But back to that question of why the cult of a donkey, right? So that's the prophecy. The prophecy in Zechariah is a cult of a donkey, and that's why he has to do that. But even further, I was like, well, what's the... There's, there's something here. What's the significance of this? Why not a magnificent horse, right? Why not the king on his magnificent horse? And there's a couple, couple reasons, as dug deeper. If you turn back to 1 Kings chapter 33, This is uh, this chapter thirty three not exist in first Kings. <laughs> well then, now First Kings chapter one verse thirty three. It helps if I read my notes rightly. Wow. Usually you do that to try to buy time, and that's that's not what I'm doing. I'm just mixed up. So this is the account in 1 Kings chapter 1, looking in verse 33. This is the account of Solomon being anointed as king and the follow-up of David as king. But specifically in verse 33, it says, And the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. Right, so even King David didn't ride a horse. He didn't ride a magnificent charger. He rode a mule. And Solomon rode a mule. And as you look further in, in that same chapter, verse 38 makes another mention that they, they went and did this thing. They had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. And then again in verse 44, it, it tells us, the king has sent him with Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and they had him ride on the king's mule. So even Solomon, when he goes to become anointed as king, rides on a mule. Now a mule and a donkey are not the same thing. I'm not trying to say like, oh, it's exactly the same thing. What I'm trying to point out is the king doesn't always ride a horse. Sometimes the king rides a mule. Sometimes King Solomon rides a mule to his coronation to his anointing as king. Now, and if looking further into the Council of the Kings, even Absalom, who rebelled against David and tried to steal the kingship, he rode a mule as well. It, within the, the family of David, they rode mules. And there was some restriction by God on the king and how many horses he can have, and, and that might play into it some. But the king does not have to ride a mule. That is not does not have to ride a horse all the time. That is not 
necessary signature of kingship. And the other interesting thing is that if a, at that time a Middle Eastern leader showed up to you on a horse, you're probably in trouble because he's coming in war. But if he shows up to you on a donkey, he's coming in peace. So Christ riding this donkey into Jerusalem is a symbol. He is, Zechariah points to him being the king, but he's coming on a donkey. He is coming in peace. He is not coming to overthrow the government. He is coming in peace. This is just a beautiful little side note we get into in this study. <clears throat> so he gives this order in verse 2. He issues that order to his disciples. Go, on tie, go into the village find this donkey tied in a colt, right? And he says in verse three, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. He's giving, exercising authority over the disciples. He's giving them clear instructions as he does it. And as I looked into other parallel accounts, if you look at Mark 11, it tells us there that when the disciples went to do this thing, they were questioned. They're like, what are you doing? What are you, you're, taking, you're taking that donkey? What, what do you think you're doing? They're like, Jesus needs it. Oh, okay, well, if Jesus needs it, go for it, right? Take it. Maybe the donkey was in possession of some other disciples of Christ, and when they heard that Jesus needed it, they, okay, go ahead. But Christ knew about this in advance, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And it happened, just as he said. He has knowledge of people. He has knowledge of events. And in verse 4, it tells us, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. So one of the key things about the ministry of Christ is you're seeing prophecy fulfilled throughout And one of the tests of whether a prophet is true is whether or not their prophecies come to fruition, right? Christ is fulfilling the prophecies about the Messiah. He is doing the things that were said would be done by the Messiah, further pointing to his Messiahship. He claimed to be the Messiah. He did the things the Messiah was supposed to do. He is the Messiah. And Matthew quotes in verse 5 from the prophet Zechariah. Verse 4 says, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. That prophet was Zechariah. Specifically, that passage is coming from Zechariah 9, verse 9. The book of Zechariah was written approximately 500 years before this event took place. So five years prior to Christ riding a donkey into Jerusalem, this was foretold. But you have here, let's turn to Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah is very end of your Old Testament, so it's really not that far away from Matthew, but Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, is the, is the passage that is referenced here. 
That passage says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So that very beginning where it talks about, O daughter of Zion, that's typically a reference in scripture to the city of Jerusalem. God's holy city, his people. But they are to rejoice greatly. What is this thing? The Messiah has come. The long-awaited Messiah is here. They are to shout aloud. But it goes on and says, Behold, your king is coming to you. Right? We often say Jesus is king, right? Here's a specific instance in Scripture where it points Jesus is king. It tells us he has fulfilled this prophecy, which points to him as king. It says your king is coming to you. But what's it tell us about this king? What about this Messiah? It says he is righteous. What's it mean to be righteous? It means he is without fault. He is a lamb without blemish, right? It points to Christ as the perfect sacrifice. It says, having salvation is he. What's going, what is Christ ultimately going into Jerusalem to do? He is going there to die, to die on a cross to provide salvation from sins. He brings salvation, forgiveness of sins through his death on the cross. That is his goal. And yet as he does it, he tells us, it, this tells us how he does it, right? It says he is humble and mounted on a donkey. I think the NIV says gentle and riding on a donkey. But it gets even more specific. It makes us, so there's no mistake. It says he's on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He's on the little, the little one. That gentleness, right? That coming in peace. He does not come to, he is not coming with the sword at this time. He is not there to overthrow the Romans. He is there to bring salvation. He is there to bring peace. This peace is between man and God that he is bringing. And what is the proper response to this? The proper response is to rejoice greatly. It is to shout. It's to be excited. A way has been made. Christ is accomplishing it. So back to Matthew 21. Verse 6 tells us the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. It was pointing to joy. Jesus has authority. He's exercising that authority over his disciples. They do it. They follow their orders. And as I said, we, if we look at the other accounts, you see exactly as he said what happened, happened. They, objections came. They gave the answer Jesus said to give. They accepted it and they came with a donkey and a colt. One of the other things that was interesting as you look at the different gospel accounts, I think Matthew is the only account that mentions the donkey and the colt both being present. Most of the other accounts just talk, just mention him riding on the colt, I think. 
And so even as you read verse 7, if you read verse 7 quickly, it can be a little confusing. It says, they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. It'd be easy to read that verse and say, Jesus can ride a donkey and a colt at the same time. Right? He's like straddling them, he's standing on his feet or something, you know, he's doing some trickery. But the, ver the verse is pointing towards he's sitting on the cloaks. Makes more sense than Christ riding two at the same time. It's a miracle enough that he's riding a colt that has not been ridden before. Let's not try to force him to ride a donkey and a non-broken colt at the same time. But he's sitting on the cloaks, which have been placed on the colt as he rides into Jerusalem. And so why is the, why is the donkey there? Well, it would seem that the donkey, the mother of this colt, is there in order to help steady this colt. Mark tells us the colt hasn't been ridden before, so the donkey is there in order to help this colt be calm as it's ridden for the first time by Christ. On the verse 8, it says, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This is the kind of reception that a king receives. They, they make way for the king, right? They, they roll out the royal carpet. They don't have a royal carpet, so they take their cloaks and they place them on the ground. And it's interesting looking through Matthew, and it's like, oh, Palm Sunday. The word palm is not in Matthew anywhere in this account. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay, let's, uh, John. John includes the account of the palm branches. John chapter 12, verse 13, he mentions they take palm fronds. And the palm branches are a symbol of joy and salvation. So they're placing these down the symbol of joy and salvation as Christ comes, preparing the way. You have other instances in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13. You have Jehu is announced as king, and the response of the men around him when he is announced as king is they take their cloaks, they set them down, they make a way for him. Is another scriptural reference of a similar thing being done for a king. It was, it was a common practice. This is not something new. The, the other thing that came to mind, so I, I was remembering, well, so what was John the Baptist's purpose? It's in the beginning of, of Matthew. There's a reference there, but it takes you back to Isaiah chapter 40. It quotes Isaiah chapter 40 in regards to John the Baptist, of what he is doing. But in verses 3 through 5 of Isaiah chapter 40, it, it tells us what John was to do. It says in Isaiah 40, starting in verse 3, it says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
So when the king came, they would fill in all the potholes in the road, right? You don't want the king coming into town and, and he's got to like try to avoid the potholes and he's got to try to avoid the animal dung that's on the road, right? You go through, you clean the road up and you even, you make it smooth once again. They, they fill in the valleys, they knock down the high hills, right? They make, they make it easy for the king to come. He's worthy of having a pathway that is, that is good. He, he, the king shouldn't have to deal with all the everyday filth of, of everybody. And that's what's partly, that's what you see being done with the placing of the cloaks and the palm fronds on the road is to make the pathway easy for Christ. Prepare that way. Make, it, make a nice path for the king. He is worthy of a good path. Roll out the royal carpet. And again in verse 9, it talks about, and the crowds that went before him and that followed were shouting. But who are in these crowds? Right? So there are crowds there, Matthew tells us. If we looked in the other accounts, in Luke chapter 19, it tells us some of who is in the crowd. Luke 19, verse 37, says, As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. So there was a large multitude of his disciples present in this crowd, according to Luke. In John chapter 12, Verse 17, it says, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. So you had, apparently when Christ raised Lazarus from the tomb, this was not a private event. There was a crowd present there. Well, that same crowd has stuck around, and they're now with him here for this entry. They are now part of this crowd, which is shouting praises to Christ, which makes sense. If you see a man raised from the dead, you're probably going to follow the guy that did it. You're going to say, this, this is something. I'm going, to, I'm going to stick around for this. He's probably going to do something else. But that is at least some of the makeup of this crowd. It doesn't say that that is all the crowd, but that's a good chunk of the crowd. Those who are his disciples, those who saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. So that is who is spreading their cloaks on the road and cutting branches from trees and are going before him and following him. It sounds Christ is surrounded in front and behind. But they are shouting, right? They are shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. We've all heard Hosanna, right? We, we're very familiar with that phrase. What's it mean? You, you say it, you sing it, but what does it mean when you say it, right? Hosanna means save, we pray, or save now. It is a, it is a Hebrew term. So you, when you read this, 
it helps if you sort of insert that meaning in there as you read it. So instead of reading it as Hosanna to the son of David, you would say, save us now to the son of David, right? Please save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us now in the highest, which doesn't always make the perfect sense. Luke writes to a Gentile audience, and he interprets it almost for that audience. So in Luke chapter 19, verse 38, it's his interpretation of this. And there it says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So blessed is this king, right? How wonderful. He is a blessed person. And peace in heaven. Glory in the highest. So they are looking for a savior. Right? The, if we go back and insert that save us to the son of David, they're looking for Jesus, who they are acknowledging as son of David, to save them. And they're glorifying him. They're giving him praises. And as I was studying through this and thinking on it, the one thing that came to mind was, you remember scripture accounts whenever somebody's in the presence of an angel, and what's typically the immediate response of someone when an angel's present? They often drop down and worship the angel. They're like, ah, whew, I worship you. And they're like, hey, knock it off. I'm just a messenger. Do not worship me. Right? Worship only God. And here you have Christ being worshiped. He is receiving it. Right? Once again, further proof Christ is the Messiah. There is no rejection of it. There is no, like, oh, stop, stop. I'm just a prophet. Like, no, this, he is worthy of praise. He receives honor, he receives praise. goes on, he enters Jerusalem, the whole city is stirred up. This event affects all of Jerusalem. And they're saying, who is this? Right? We, we, we heard there's a procession, that there was a celebration of a king entering. Who, who is this king that has entered? Right? We, we haven't heard of this. Maybe a foreign dignitary has come from out of town for Passover. Like, who is it? He saw it. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Oh, he's not a, that's not a king I was expecting to have show up, right? But they're pointing towards who he is, where he's from. He is the prophet Jesus. But this, this entrance has influenced the whole city. They want to know. So what's the importance of this event? Right? Why do we, why do we celebrate this? Why do why do we have children come up front and sing songs and wave palm palm branches? Right? This is the kickoff of Passion Week, the last week of Christ's life. His ministry is now focused in the area of Jerusalem, 
it was interesting studying this. I was, I have a MacArthur commentary I was reading through and he, he's like, we typically put Palm Sunday on Sunday. And he went through and gave, well, uh, I think it may have actually been on Monday. Okay, well, what's the, what's the significance of, of that? And he said, well, Monday was the day when the Passover lamb was brought into the home to begin to prepare it for the sacrifice later that week. So Christ, as the Passover lamb, it would make sense that he would come enter into Jerusalem on the same day as the Passover lambs come in. That he would be, he is the Passover lamb. Things, it would make sense for them to correspond, right? We don't know exactly, I don't want you to start being like, we shouldn't celebrate Palm Sunday on Sunday because Greg said so, like I, I'm not the best authority for that. But Christ is the Passover lamb. It would make perfect sense for God to have him enter Jerusalem the same day as those Passover lambs are in preparation for the sacrifice. But what do we learn about Christ in this passage? How does this exalt Christ? How does this cause us to love Christ more? In this passage, we see the knowledge of Jesus, the omniscience, right? He, he tells them, go find this donkey and this colt, and they go do it. It's exactly where he said it's going to be. The people respond exactly as he said they would be, right? He doesn't have prior knowledge of that. Again, pointing to the deity of Christ. And we see the authority of Christ within those disciples. He gives them orders. They do as he says. They don't say, well, I'm going to go. How about so-and-so does it? I really, I've been walking all day. I don't feel like doing it. No, they just, okay, yes, Lord, we do it. There was another bit that I didn't include directly, but it was in, I believe it's in John. And what John says in the beginning of the triumphal entry story is that Jesus is out in front as they begin this procession. And I, you, I keep that in mind. So Jesus is in front. He's leading. And just shortly before that, he had predicted his death once again. Right? So he is going into Jerusalem. He knows he is going to die. And where is he at? He's in front. He's not sitting in the back. He's not saying, woe is me, I'm going to die soon. No, he's in front. He's there to accomplish the mission his father has sent him on. He's not weak. He is leading. And Jesus is king. That is what Zechariah the prophet tells us there. But he is a king of peace. He did not enter into Jerusalem to throw, overthrow the Romans. He went there to bring peace. And that is what riding the donkey further points towards. And we know that because of Jesus, we can have peace with God. He has forgiven sins. And, the, and what you see is maybe some of the people in that crowd... We're pointing towards, yes, this is a king of peace. And maybe some of them were saying, well, this is a king who's going to come overthrow the Romans. He's going to get us out of this, right? Well, the biggest problem of the people in Israel was not that the Romans were over them. Their biggest problem was that they were not at peace with God. They had sins that separated them from having peace with God. And Christ brought that peace. He died on the cross in order to provide peace between God and man. 
the forgiveness of sins. So the biggest problem is not whatever thing is looming over your life, but it is what is your relationship with God? Do you have peace with him? Has there been peace given between you and God through Jesus Christ? Are your sins forgiven? That is our biggest problem. That is the biggest problem of all the people in our world today. And that is what Christ has done. Lord, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for giving me the time to, to study it, to share what is found there. Um, thank you for the effect it has on my life and hopefully of those who hear this message. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the ability to have peace with God because of him. In Jesus' name, amen. You can turn in your hymnals to page 348, and on the last verse, the deacons can come up. Page 348, Redeemed. <clears throat> redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed through His infinite mercy, His child and forever I am. Redeemed, redeemed, Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed, redeemed, His child and forever I am. Redeemed and so happy in Jesus, no language my rapture can tell. I know that the light of His presence with me doth continually dwell. Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed, redeemed, His child and forever I am. I think of my blessed Redeemer, I think of Him all the day long. I sing for I cannot be silent. His love is the theme of my song. Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed, redeemed, His child and forever I am. I know I shall see in His beauty the King in whose love I delight. Who lovingly guardeth my footsteps and giveth me song in the night. Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed, redeemed, his child and forever I am. Interesting. I was listening to Greg and teaching him and realizing whenever this all took place, the, uh, the 
time that we now call communion, but this last supper took place during this week. They found this room to spend time in, and, uh, and uh, there were a lot of people there at the time, but um, the purpose was on this first day of the festival, they found this place to start doing the festival of bread, unleavened bread, and they got together and then they ate this meal together. And if you know anything about the Passover, when the blood shed, the lamb is to be eaten. Um, by those that are there, they cook it and they eat it and they, and they clean it all up. Uh, and this is part of that feast. Well, at this time is whenever Christ then shares about once more uh, the ultimate reality that he's going to his death, he shares once again, because this is what happens, is he spends his time uh, getting ready to die, basically this week before his death. But what an incredible thing when we realize that he's about to be broken and sacrificed and, and his blood shed and all this for the sin of man. His determination because he loves us to care for our sin. So here, he passes, he, he talks to them, he, he just gets done with Judas and he says, um, now they were eating and Jesus took the bread and when he given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and saying, drink from it, all of you, this is my blood for the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, those two things, once again, pointing towards the fact that he's about to die. And he's going to die for the sins of man. He's the ultimate Passover lamb. And he has set this all up to make sure that we're aware of this. And now, he wants us to continue to do that, as it, it says in 1 Corinthians, that we continue to do this, uh, even when he's not here, to celebrate what he's done for us. Gracious Father, as we think of this, we think of uh, what you've done, and it doesn't matter how many times we, we ponder it, it is so overwhelming to realize what you did for us that you took on the sin of all our sin, that we might be forgiven, because you shed your blood to cleanse us from it. That your Son might come and do this, Father, is incredible, that Jesus would offer his life. As we celebrate and continue to celebrate this week and realize that this is the time frame, this would be our remembrance of your dying on the cross as we approach that time when you'll rise again. Help us to fully realize, Lord, the price you paid for our sin. And, and as we take part in this, that we might take part in this, recognizing the, the awfulness of our sin, but also recognizing the shed blood and broken body of Christ to take care of us. So help us as we partake together to do this together as a family in love in Christ's name.
said, this is my body. Take me to it. Once again, Father, we're thankful for the shed blood because we know that is what cleanses us from all our sin. We know that's what allows us to stand in your presence, to come and uh, talk to you at any time, to be able to, to be present and accounted for. There's no veil left because of the shedding of your son's blood. So help us to fully realize the freedom that has given us to be in your presence. Thank you for caring for our sins. In your name. Just took the cup and when he's giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my body of the covenant, which is poured out for many through the forgiveness of sins. Thank you, all of you. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, thank you for this day. It's a reminder of the day when. Jesus entered into Jerusalem. He entered knowing full well that he would die for the sins of the world. Lord, we thank you for that. We pray that you'll help us to, to once again recognize how great your love is for us. 
and that we might have that amazing sense of love that we had when we first realized that you paid the price for our sin. Help us to rejoice, to leave excited about what you've done, to be once more reminded of how awful sin is and how amazing your love was to care for it. Thank you for this time together that we can share together in fellowship around your word in Christ's name. You are dismissed.